From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. One of the functions of a medical university is to encourage scientific research. On the campus of Upstate Medical University this week is Dr. Susan Amara, the Scientific Director of the Intramural Research Program at the National Institute of Mental Health. She's here to speak to student researchers, and she agreed to stop by HealthLink on Air. So thank you, Dr. Amara. Thank you. Now, your area of research uh, interest has something to do with antidepressants and psychostimulant medications used for the treatment of mental disorders, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. So can you explain sort of the focus of your laboratory? So um, right now, um, one of the major focuses is to understand um, how medications to treat ADHD work within the brain. Uh, we, we study uh, the psychostimulant medications such as um, amphetamine and methylphenidate, which are um, known as Adderall and Ritalin, and we study how they work on specific cell groups within the brain and how they affect signaling. We know a lot about how, um, what amphetamines do and what Ritalin does, but we know much less about Um, the etiology of ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. And um, we know um, surprisingly little about how these drugs really work to affect the the disorder. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because those are drugs that I recognize. They've Mm -hmm. been around and used, and and so we're still studying them, though, right? Yeah. So it seems to me... um, Many children in the U.S., millions actually, are being treated with these um, psychostimulant drugs. Um, They've been proven to be um, relatively safe, safe um, drugs in general, but we actually don't know what they do to neurons within the brain. And so my lab has been interested in what happens, particularly for amphetamine, when amphetamines enter the cell and, and they enter through a molecule that my lab has studied for many years, which is a transporter for the neurotransmitter dopamine. Um, and um, this uh, carrier um, really allows once a neurotransmitter has been released and to allow signaling, the carrier actually retakes up, or it's called a reuptake um, transporter, that takes up the uh, transmitter to um, uh, limit the signal. And so amphetamines actually enter the cell through the transporter, and they affect all kinds of signaling pathways within the cell. Those pathways can change the properties of the cell and do many different things. And we're really trying to understand those signaling mechanisms and and also to potentially um, allow us to identify new targets which might be more selective or safer or whatever to to really um, think about what other ways we can treat ADHD. Well, interesting. Now, I understand you were the first to clone the human dopamine transporter. Um, yeah, there were several groups at the same time, but um, our, our lab was the first to clone a, a norepinephrine transporter, actually. But um, yeah, we were um, quite a number of years back, and we were interested in what these molecules looked like and and how they worked and understanding how they worked when they work well and how their functions might Um, not work and under certain conditions. So, um, and we've studied that for many years since. How did you get involved in 
medications for ADHD? Um, because um, the, the targets that we work on these reuptake sites are the targets for antidepressant medications, which include the SSRIs, which target the serotonin transporter. And, um, and they also um, uh, are the targets for drugs of abuse, such as cocaine and amphetamines. So cocaine targets um, several of the transporters, and amphetamines um, tend to work selectively on the dopamine transporter more selectively. And so, um, so we've worked on how these molecules operate as drug targets and what they really do. Some drugs simply bind to the um, the, the transporters and block reuptake, and that has been very useful for treating depression because it elevates neurotransmitter levels and leads to adaptive changes in 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 the set point for how um, neurotransmission occurs, and um, and it leads to improvement of symptoms of depression. And so we were interested in that, but I became more interested. Um, when we realized that in terms of amphetamine action and ADHD was that amphetamines, although they were thought to act in a similar way to inhibit reuptake, they seemed to do other things within the cell. So they also provoke the release of neurotransmitter and, um, and they actually activate signaling pathways and change um, the properties of the neuron that they act on in ways that some of the other molecules don't. And so we've explored that. Um, so most of the things we work on are really targets for drugs, either drugs of abuse, um, therapeutic antidepressants, or um, ADHD medications. And it sounds like there's things you can learn from each of those and there's some yeah. overlaps with yeah, them. and and other groups certainly you know the one th wonderful thing about science is that um, it it's a community and so there are many other groups and together all the different groups contribute to understanding various aspects of how the drugs work. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Amara. She's the scientific director of the Intramural Research Program at the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, what are your thoughts on the use of antidepressants and whether they're effective in treating depression? So um, uh, I think that um, antidepressants in general and, and for many people um, really have a, a huge impact on um, their condition and the, and, and the disorders. So I think they're important drugs. I also think that there's potential for really understanding better mechanisms of depression to be able to better link a particular drug with a particular um, feature of the disease. And so what, what I, I would say is that we don't understand the underlying mechanisms of depression, although we do know that there are many things that contribute to it. But it's pretty clear that it's not just one disease. It's, it can be triggered by many things. And it can be linked to genetics. It can be linked to many aspects um, of, you know, what, what triggers the, the events that produce it. And so in that sense, I think 
um, there's there is potential for developing new treatments, and not simply pharmacological ones. There also the potential for developing devices and to um, for neuromodulation and and stimulation that um, of, of particular circuits in the brain involved in depression. And so I think in some ways um, we need to to much better probe and understand the different mechanisms that operate. And, and I think part of that is if we're going to prescribe medications, we want to prescribe the right ones. Many of the, depre- the, the antidepressants that target the, in fact most, that target the molecules I study um, are ones that um, take two weeks to actually produce an amelioration of depression. But now there are a number of new potential drugs that are um, just coming online, actually. In fact, one was approved a couple of weeks ago um, for getting fast-acting improvement of depression. Interesting. And and so it may be possible to combine those drugs with these drugs, which have a much longer, um, they they take longer to to turn on um, the systems that would improve depression. Um, The combination of those may be a way of, of, of really getting a person very rapidly improved by mechanisms. And so, you know, again, all of these things really make it important to understand what are the specific underlying mechanisms for the different forms of depression that, that have been noted? Can you tell me about work you did as a PhD student at UC San Diego? I, I read about a new um, targeted treatment for migraines that works on a molecule that was discovered by chance by researchers studying oh, thyroid tumors. That was and a that was long you, right? time ago, but I'm really excited about the outcome because um, during my PhD, I worked on a gene um, and uh, that that encoded the hormone calcitonin. Okay, but in the in the course in the course of those studies, we discovered that the same gene could essentially be pieced together in a different way to produce another what looked to be a hormone as well. It turned out to be a neuropeptide in the brain. And that neuropeptide is um, important for vascular regulation. And and we called it calcitonin gene-related peptide, or CGRP. And after about 35 years of really incredible work by drug companies and investigators who saw the the importance of this um, particular compound in vascular regulation, um, it ended up that several companies have now successfully brought forth um, um, antibodies against either the peptide or the receptor that can be administered in humans and reduce the frequency of migraine attacks. And so um, they're now um, clinically available, and, and and it's just been great to see. I, I don't work in that field anymore, but it's an example of how an unexpected discovery in one field can lead to a, a, a new drug or a new treatment for something in a completely different field than I had originally thought we were working in. So I think it's 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 a nice example, and um, and I. I I've really enjoyed watching it develop over a, like a, a long period of time. Did you always want to be a scientist? I always did. Yeah. You knew from day one. Well, 
you know, I, I think I went through the fire. Of the, I wanted to be a cowgirl for a while, but I, I think I, if that didn't work out, if that didn't work out, I was going to do this. But um, it, it it's it's been an incredibly rewarding career, and I tell the students that all the time. I'm here to I'm here actually to talk to the students, and um, it it um, if you love it, it's something that um, you can't think of a better a better career to really you know be able to ex- do experiments and and find out kind of fundamental mechanisms about how things work and then think about how to target those mechanisms for drug discovery or or yeah developing new medications and treatments what advice would you give to young scientists who are just getting started in their careers at a time when research funding is not plentiful yeah, it you know it. A lot of it is, um, I think, I, I think it does take a lot of resilience to to stay in science. But in fact, science, the process of science itself, has you know it has many failures. Um, there are many times when th- experiments don't work, and so you, I, I always encourage them to be resilient and realize that failure is an, an important part of of what um, what happens during science. Um, and, and but most of all, you know, if it's something you really enjoy and you're really fascinated by, um, I, I really encourage students to stick with it. And there, there's another feature to it is that your path can actually doesn't necessarily mean you have to get grant funding to support your research program, your own research program. But there are many other ways that you can contribute. And so there are people who are involved, who are scientists who are involved in policy, in communication, in a lot of other aspects of science that still um, mean that they're doing it, they're contributing, and they're really playing an important role. So I, I tell students to think broadly about what they might do. There are opportunities in industry. I have a sister. She has the same background. She went into biotech and industry and had a, a rich and interesting career that way. And so I really do think there there's a breadth of opportunities for people who love what they're doing and are engaged in the ideas and and the, you know, the the approaches that um, I stick with it. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. My guest has been Dr. Susan Amara. She's from the National Institute of Mental Health. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show. HealthLink on air.